right, tonight we're going to be looking at our study on what we believe, and tonight we're going to be looking at the Trinity, the Trinity. So it's going to be a pretty intense study. Trinity is not something you can just breeze through, obviously. So you have your outline there, and we'll be looking at several verses. But um, one thing I wanted to uh, uh, start off with was basically, you know, when we, when we go through the study, we're, we're trying to equip you. We're trying to help you contend for the faith. And oftentimes when people talk about the Trinity, it, it, it's something that complicates um, our Christian presentation of the gospel, you could say, because not everybody gets the Trinity. Uh, I don't understand the Trinity completely. I understand what the Word of God says about the Trinity. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But uh, I remember um, years ago, I think it was back in 2009, um, Lucille's hometown in New York, uh, she basically, Celeron, uh, New York, they wanted to honor her. And if you don't know who Lucille Ball is, she's a comedic actress. It's been around for a long time. She's passed on now. But they wanted to honor her for her life's work. And they thought, you know, we'll, we'll hire this sculptor and they'll put this uh, bronze image of Lucille Ball in one of the public parks. I don't know if you remember reading about this, but it was a huge statue of, of Lucy. It was um, about 400 pounds and pretty much life-size and they were really excited about getting this to the, from the sculptor. And the day came and they unveiled it. And um, if you know anything about Lucille Ball, this is Lucy. She's very, was a very beautiful woman, obviously. And um, she was very good at comedy. They just ran through her veins. The problem was, once they unveiled this statue in her honor and re- remembering her, um, the people of the town were far from impressed. As a matter of fact, they had a revolt, literally a revolt. Uh, they went bonkers. They went to the city council. They had a Facebook page about changing you know, the statue. They petitioned the city council, all this stuff. And the, the problem was simply this. It's not hard to see why. This was the statue. <laughs> this statue is known as Scary Lucy. This is literally what they put up in the town square in her hometown. And the people just went nuts. And, you know, I mean, the problem is, if you look at the depiction of the statue from the movie scene, there's no, there's no resemblance at all. And so this, this became known as Scary Lucy in the town. And it was only up for less than a year before they petitioned to, to get rid of the statue and replace it with another one. Uh, but it was, it was interesting. Ironically enough, um, they took it down, they replaced it with a, a, a statue that resembled more like Lucille Ball. And, yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important, I think, that when you, you come to understand that you're trying to resemble something, it has to look like it. Okay, I'm going to get rid of Lucy here because she's freaking me out. Yeah. <laughs> and so when it comes to our faith, when it comes to 
understanding who we are as believers, you could say. Um, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like Christ. Thank you. Okay, what a trick question. It's supposed to look like Christ. Um, the problem is the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to reflect the nature. It's supposed to reflect the, the character, you could say. It's supposed to reflect the actions of Jesus. And now you hear people complain like they did about Scary Lucy. Well, the church doesn't look like Christ. Have you ever heard that? Um, it doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't seem like God. It, doesn't, it seems like it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And sometimes that's accurate. And frankly, sometimes it's not so accurate. But let me ask you this. As a church, as we think of our own church, do we reflect? Do we look a lot like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do we resemble Christ? Now, let's make it even more personal. Let's talk about the person sitting in your chair, meaning you. <laughs> okay, do you, you as a Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, do you as a person emulate Christ? Do you look a lot like Jesus Christ? Now, some of you are maybe saying, well, I look like the scary Jesus. <laughs> I don't know about, you know, and that's true sometimes. We all go there. Uh, but this is what we're called to do. We are left here. We are saved. The Spirit fills us. Uh, and he changes us from the inside out, conform us to shape us, to make us more and more like Jesus, more and more like the Savior. And uh, so the rest of the world can look at us and say, okay, that must be what Jesus looks like. That's why he left us here, to bring the gospel to those who are lost. We can't do that if we don't look like the one we're representing um, one of the problems for many of us, I think, in the church in general, I'm speaking, is that we don't look like Jesus and we don't even look like God in a, in a godless world, really, uh, because we don't have a good grasp, we don't have a good understanding of what God looks like. We, we fail in that department sometimes. We don't have a great view of God. And it's because we have a limited, or you could say a narrow, view of who God is and what God is. And so I want to help us tonight as we look at this, because we're really looking at this series to help us understand some of the basics of our faith. And it's, meant, it's designed to help us to understand who God really is in his uh, nature. Uh, sometimes you go to certain churches and all they talk about is Jesus. Other churches you go to, all they talk about is the Holy Spirit. All right, And it seems like those are the polarized things. But what we want to do is have a full understanding. We want to have a full view of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We, we want to have a greater view of God. And that speaks of the Trinity. And the greater, I believe, the depth, the greater the understanding uh, the greater the ability that we have in this lost world to look like our Savior, to look like God in some fashion to an ungodly world, uh, that's what we're all about. That's why we exist. And so we're going to tackle that tonight. Now, some of you are saying, the Trinity, really? You know, I can't understand the Trinity. I, well, you know what? Welcome to the club. I don't understand the Trinity either. 
uh, been studying it for years, and I still do not grasp the Trinity. Uh, Albert Einstein said this, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. <laughs> okay, we, we're not, we can't dumb down the Trinity. Uh, we can't. And the problem with many of us is that we want to reduce God down to this little itty-bitty God who we can control. We want to make him so simplistic uh, that we understand everything about him. And that's not going to happen. Do you really want a God who you can understand that's maybe just a little bit smarter than you? No, I don't. Um, Do you want a God who's just a little bit more powerful than you? No. Uh, So many of us, we try to reduce God down. We don't pursue all that he is represented to us in the scriptures. And so we're going to look at this tonight. We don't, you could say, we don't plumb the depths of what he has given us uh, because we, in the back of our mind, we kind of want to control God. We want, we want to think that somehow we can control him. And if he's so big, as the scripture says, well, we can't do that. And so we're not going to be able to control God anyway. But sometimes we begin to think we can't. And, and so we want to understand as much as possible. So try to stay with us tonight as we go through this. It's, the Lord is worthy of it. And um, uh, I, I know that it's, it's going to be taxing on our minds, some of the things we're going to talk about, but it's, it's good. And so at the end of this, you're not going to know everything about the Trinity, because I don't know everything about the Trinity. Nobody knows everything about the Trinity. Um, but you're going to know hopefully more than what you did when you came in, and, and hopefully it will be applicable to your Christian walk, and, and that's really the point, right? Now, there are some people who make the argument theologically in certain belief systems. They say, well, we don't believe in the Trinity because the word Trinity is not what? In the Bible. You ever heard of that? It's not in the Bible. And they're right. It's not in the Bible. But guess what? The word Bible's not in the Bible, but we still believe in the doctrine of the scriptures. The word omniscience is not in the Bible, but we still believe that God is all-knowing. The word omnipotent is not in the Bible, but we believe that God is all-powerful. As a matter of fact, even the word atheist is not in the Bible, but we all know they exist, right? So we can't limit our beliefs to the exact vocabulary that we find in the scriptures. And what we want is this. We want to have our beliefs based on what the words of the Bible say and what they mean. That's what we base our doctrines on. We don't just reduce it down, our beliefs, to the exact vocabulary that's in the Bible. Well, if it's not in the Bible, then we don't believe it. Um, And so what does this say? What does this book, the Bible, say? And what does it mean when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to that? Um, and hopefully you can use that, because people use that argument all the time. I don't believe in the Trinity because it's not in the Bible. Well, right there, you're equipped to go out and, and share that illustration. Well, the word Bible's not in, in, in the Scriptures. You still believe that? Um, while the word Trinity is not in the Bible physically, okay, it is, you could say, um, depicted, it's described everywhere throughout Scripture. And we're going to go over some of that tonight. Now, there's basically uh, three big ideas here we're going to look at tonight, and they're there on your outline. Hopefully, we'll get through this. And um, we're we're not trying to, like I said, overwhelm you with a bunch of 
theological doctrine that makes no practical sense to your own life. So hopefully this will be a practical teaching tonight. But when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, the first thing there, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, we should embrace the mystery of the Trinity. Embrace the mystery of the Trinity. Um, Someone once said, define the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But deny the Trinity, and you'll lose your soul. Define the Trinity, you'll, you'll lose your mind trying to do that. But if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. It is, I believe, an issue for people. This isn't a doctrine you can just brush aside and say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It does. So I hope none of us will lose our minds tonight, but hopefully we'll be required to use our mind as we delve into this subject. Um, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. It doesn't matter how godly of a person you are. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. All right, You're never going to understand completely and fully the doctrine of the Trinity. Not even on that side of heaven, by the way. You know, we think sometimes, you know, do you realize that when you get to heaven, you're not going to immediately know everything that God knows? Even though we'll have the mind of Christ, we're not going to know everything. Uh, it's going to take an eternity, which we're going to see in a moment that never ends. Um, it's going to take an eternity for us to go into the depths of who God is. And, that, and that's what awaits us in heaven. That's the excitement about being promoted to heaven is you have this adventure before you, and you have all eternity for the adventure, and the adventure never ends. Uh, we're not going to be sitting on a, a cloud, you know, strumming a harp. I would lose my mind in about three minutes if we had to do that. So, you know, that's not what heaven is about. There's gonna, it's going to be an adventure, and God wants us involved in that. And, but it's going to take all of eternity for this to take place. But when it comes to the Trinity the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to have to first and foremost embrace that there is a mystery to the Trinity. You're not going to understand it. There's a mystery to it. And the mystery is wonderful. That's a positive thing, by the way. It's not a negative thing. It's not that God is somehow illogical or that God is, is it's, it's that God is beyond our logic. He's not illogical. He's beyond our logic. There's no amount of human reason or human logic that can contain our God. Uh, he's beyond all that. It was John Wesley, I think, the, the great Methodist preacher, who said this, you bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I'll bring you a man who can comprehend the triune God. <laughs> in other words, it's not going to happen. It's no, there's no possibility in that. Isaiah 55 speaks of this, the prophet Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, I'll just read these. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? God says this. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then he says this, for as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's quite a distance, right? I mean, if you think about that, are so my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, you know, if those verses are true, and of course we believe the scriptures are true, uh, wouldn't you think that there would be a little bit of mystery that should be expected when we come to understanding the nature and the characteristic and the attributes of God? If God's thoughts and his ways are so much higher than ours, um, it's going to be really difficult to get everything. You're not going to completely understand God the first time around, the second time, third time. That's why it takes all eternity. 
And, and some of you have maybe never heard a message on the Trinity per se. So hopefully we'll give you a little bit of understanding here tonight. But do you realize that the end result today is not what God is looking for? What do you mean? He's not in heaven saying, well, you know what, if you would have just sang that song a little bit better, or if you would, that, and then you really would have worshipped me, or, or if you would have just preached that message just a little bit better, then, then that really would have been accepted. It would have been perfect. That's not the God we serve. Um, you know what God is looking for, in all honesty? It's not the end result of a song. It's not the end result of a sermon or a message. It's what? It's our heart. It's our heart. Uh, what did we put into it? Um, if you don't put your heart into singing, if you don't put your heart into listening, if you don't put your heart into teach, teaching, guess what? You're not worshiping God with those actions. You're just going through the motions. And so when we're not putting our hearts into something, we're not worshiping God because worship is the process. If we come before the Lord and we passionately pursue Him, uh, you know, it's, it's not when you leave how much you got. It's when you come, how much are you willing to give? That's really the idea of worshiping God. Did you put all that you have into it? And so we're going to try to do everything we can to understand this. And we're going to leave you with some mystery here, but we're going to try to deal with some of these things. And at least we're going to try to comprehend some of this, this Trinity subject for tonight. Um, there's a couple reasons, I think, why it's so difficult for human beings, for us, to comprehend the Trinity. And I think the first one is this. Um, if you think about it, one is that we have a difficulty understanding the concept of eternity. I mean, I don't understand eternity. Do you? I mean, I know what the definition of eternity is, but do you really understand it? It never ends. Infinity is, is no beginning. Eternity is no end. And God is both. We have, a trouble, we have trouble with that. And the reason is, is because we were born into what? We were born into the construct of time, right? We have an age. We have a, a day we're born. We have a day we die. We have these, live our life according to the clock in between those two times. Everything we do and we think it's all in terms of time. And, and really, we don't kill time. Time kills us. That's what happens. Every holiday, every birthday, every new wrinkle, every lost hair, every ache, every pain, new every morning, all those things. Just remember, the clock is ticking. Time is running out. Everything we do one day will come to an end. Um, how much sleep we get, how long we work each week, uh, how long the show that we watch is. It goes on and on. Time is everything. Everything is about time in our lives. And so when it comes to God and, and God being eternal, we just go, what? I, I can't comprehend that. Uh, because everything we know has a beginning and has an end, except God. Except God. And so to wrap our heart and our minds around who God is, we have to think of God as outside of time. Uh, there's no beginning and there's no end. 
We're never going to get to um, understand everything because we have this issue with time. Another reason is it's so difficult, not only because of the, the concepts of infinity and eternity, but also because there's, there's nothing to compare this to. Who do you compare God to? We don't have anything. We have nothing to compare God to. And, and that's how we learn, do we not? We learn, we're trained to compare things. You know, when somebody says, here, bake this cake this way, they show you. You know, you don't just say, okay, thanks, but I'm going to do it, you know, because it won't come out right, okay? And so it's very important. We, com we learn by comparison. We compare everything. We compare baseball teams. We compare football teams. Which one's better? Which one's not? Sports. We compare singers. Uh, we compare how good one is as opposed to another. We compare preachers. We compare a lot of things, and we evaluate a lot of things, and then we prioritize those things based on our comparisons. So when it comes to God, he, he's only one category. He's the only one in the category. There's no one to compare him to. We have nothing to compare him to. And the scripture over and over and over again tells us that there's no one like him. Isaiah 40, verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. There's nobody in God's category at all. Um, Augustine was walking along a, an oceanside beach one day, and he was just thinking about theological things, and he was perplexed. And his, his mind went through all these different major thoughts, and he was trying to write about this very subject, the Trinity. He was trying to write about the Trinity. And he was completely perplexed, a brilliant man, completely perplexed. And he was walking along the ocean, and he noticed this little boy running back and forth from the sand to the ocean, the sand to the ocean, just, you know, just going back and forth. Going. So he, he got his curiosity, and he went over to the little boy, and he says, son, what are you doing? And look, he's running back and forth. And he says, I'm trying to fit the whole ocean in this hole. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, he was... <laughs> What a, what a childish thing to say. And Augustine says suddenly, it suddenly really dawned on him what he was trying to do. He was trying to fit the infinite God into a finite mind. You're not going to be able to do that. We can't fully comprehend God. There's no way to do that because there's nothing to compare God to. And so in trying to put all of God into this finite mind, there's no possible way that we can do that. And so we get everything, um, we, we are to get everything. We may not understand all that God is, but we, we were trying to do that. And, and that's what he tells us to do. And it's really based on a, a love relationship that we have with God. The goal of a love relationship is not trying to comprehensively, thoroughly, exhaustively know the other person, right? I mean, that, that's that's part of it. I mean, when you when you got married, you didn't know everything about your spouse. Maybe you thought you did. Then you woke up the next morning, you're going, "Wow, what?" But you know that that's that's not that's not the way it works. You don't know everything. The the goal of a love relationship is not to exhaustively, thoroughly know someone, um, so that you get the end of your life and I know everything there is about you. That's not the goal. The goal, the way that we should 
show honor, the way that we should show love to a person is that we continue to what? Be interested in knowing and discovering more. You don't get to a point and say, yeah, I know everything about you later. That, that's not love. And it's the same thing with God. The joy of the Christian walk is really discovering who God is. It's, it's, it's the joy that's in the journey with God. So we're honoring God, we're loving God, we're worshiping God, and, and not that we get to a point that we exhaustively know God because that won't happen. But we can intimately know Him more and more each day. We'll never exhaustively know God, but we can personally, we can intimately know Him, and He wants us to know Him more and more and more each day. The longer you pursue, the longer you study, the longer you pray, the longer you walk with the Lord, what? The more you get to know Him. And so I want to say it's okay. There should be this mystery about who God is, especially when it comes to the Trinity. You know, uh, well, I still have some questions. Well, sure, welcome to the club. We all have questions. It's normal. So really embrace the mystery. Secondly, explore the majesty of the Trinity. When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, we should explore the majesty of the Trinity. Um, I mean, if you've looked at this at all, you understand the majesty of the Trinity is a complex subject. There's a lot of complexity in the Trinity. It's not a subject matter. You just, oh, yeah, 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 I got that. No, you can ponder this till the cows come home and you're still, it's, gonna, it's just so complex. Um, but there is part of the beauty, part of the splendor, and part of the glory of God found in the Trinity. The fact that he is uh, incomprehensible. And yet, what he does is he gives us hints along the way as to he's constantly telling us, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. This is my character. These are some of my attributes. He tells us that over and over and over again. And God is not some God who's aloof saying, you know what, you can never know me, so don't even try. No, he, he exposes himself to us. But he also understands that if he exposed himself completely, our brains would explode. So he doesn't do that. Um, so I'm going to give you part of who I am. This is what God tells us. I'm going to help you understand part of who I am. And as you explore it, you go on this adventure uh, when you become a Christian, you don't know all that God is. None of us do. It takes really the rest of your life to discover in your Christian walk how you become more like Christ and how, how Christ uh, lives in you. That is the journey, the joy of discovery. Now, there's, there's basically three Trinitarian truths here that we have to understand, at least in part. And this is where it gets a little dicey. But the, the first one is, is pretty simple. The first Trinitarian truth is simply this. There is only, what? One God. There is only one God. Um, you need to hear this. This is so important. We're not polytheists. We don't believe in several gods. Polytheists believe in more than one God. We do not. We believe in one God. We're not uh, tritheists who believe that we have precisely three gods. That's what they believe. No, we are called what? What's a Christian? A monotheist, right? We believe in one God. 
That's what the Bible tells us. Now, the word monotheist is not in the Bible, um, but all the way through the Bible is monotheism. That's what we see over and over and over again. There's only one God, one God, one God, one God. In fact, here's just a few. Isaiah 45, 5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. He says there is no other God. That's pretty clear, right? He doesn't stutter. You can't kind of work polytheism. You can't work tritheism into that and be true to what he's saying there. He says there is only one God and there is no other. Um, when we go into the Trinity, we look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are monotheists. There is one God. They're not three gods. 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this, For there is one God, and there is just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But he starts off saying there's only one God. Or 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food, he's talking about that was offered to idols and whatever, he says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Very clear. See, the heart of, of, of Judeo-Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, the heart of what we believe is monotheistic. There's only one God. Secondly, God is three persons. God is three persons. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There is one God, there is one substance, as, as theologians might say, or one essence that is God, but there are three persons, distinct persons in the Godhead. That's why we get this word, right? Tri-unity. Three in one. One in three. We have one God revealed to us in what? Three persons. And there, you have to understand that that these are distinct persons. These are three distinct persons. That sounds a lot like semantics, but you know, if you think of it this way, think of it mathematically, one plus one plus one equals what? Three, right? Uh, you got your math right, but when you go to the Trinity, the equation's wrong. The equation's wrong. Instead of one plus one plus one equals three, you have one times one times one equals what? One. So all around us, God gives us hints as to how this works. We have time, we have the essence of time, but there's, there's these three parts to time. Think about it. What is it? You have past, right? You have present, and you have future. You have three distinct parts. It's time as a unit, but it's, it's broken up that way. Um, they're not each other, but together they make up time. We might think of it this way. If you wanted to figure out the, the area of this room, what would you do? Okay, you, you would need three measurements. You would need the breadth, the length, and the width, right? You need all those. Now, you don't take those numbers once you measure everything and just add it up, do you? No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you wouldn't add the length and then add the breadth and, and add the, the length to it, or the width. Um, you would what? Multiply those. That would give you that one area that's made up of those three measurements. Now, those are just hints of what the Trinity's like. They're not replicates. 
Uh, you're not going to hear me say today, I'm not going to pull an egg out and say, okay, this is the Trinity, you know, you have the shallow. It falls apart. It's a very dangerous thing when you start doing that because you're trying to simplify the concept that God has given us down to something that we could understand. And when you go down that path, you end up, it will lead you in heresy. It will lead you to heresy. Some people try to do colors. You know, you have the three basic colors, you, you, all that stuff. Um, it's still going to go down the wrong path eventually. There, there are no analogies that work for the Trinity. There's none. And the reason is, is because there's no one like God. It's, it's that simple. Uh, God doesn't want us to boil it down and make it this easy little thing. It's way beyond that. It's way beyond our, our comprehension. And so in the Godhead, there you could, you could put it like this. The what is God. The who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the substance, what, and then you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do they make up? One God. Even though they're distinct persons. Uh, they're all eternal we're going to look at that in a moment. They all have the attributes of God, every one of them. Um, and we see that from the very beginning. Now, let me say, I do not believe that when the Old Testament writers were writing the Scriptures that they understood the Trinity. I don't think they understood it. The Bible progressively demonstrates and overtly shows us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But now we can look back and we can, uh, because of these writers uh, who did not understand the Trinity, but guess what? Remember, there was, there was what, 40 writers who, who wrote the Scriptures. We looked at this last week, but we said there was one what? Only one author. Only one author. And so God knew who he was, and he was revealing progressively throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament so that we can look back and go, wow, okay, now I have a lot more information about this God. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he even says that um, there, are, there are things that angels long to look into. In other words, they're, they're kind of looking, trying to look into things that they can't even comprehend about God and about our salvation and about other things. And so there are things that are hidden from God, by God. They're hidden by God, and God reveals them over time. And so we can look back in the Old Testament, and we can see, wow, this is what's going on. We kind of have a better perspective now. And God is using that for our benefit. Um, when you look at, at Genesis 1.1, Ty went through this, but when we look at Genesis 1.1, we begin to see right there that God is beginning to reveal and, and unveil the Trinity. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That word there, the Hebrew, is Elohim. And it basically it's a plural use. And so it could really, I mean, if you, if you didn't put it in its grammatical context, uh, it could mean God's, plural. Because that's what gives it the, the plural, the em on the end of Elohim. That makes it what, what makes it plural. 
It's like um, if you said you had a cherub, what would you say? You'd have an angel, right? But if you had cherubim, right, you'd have multiple angels or a seraphim. Seraph is B1. Seraphim would be multiple or a group of angels. El is God. Elohim is plural. It's God's. So you say, well, then why doesn't it say in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth? The reason is because of the verb that's used in this context. While the, the noun is plural, Elohim, um, hang in there, the noun is plural, the verb is singular. So we have the plural, that means there's a group of, there's more than one, but the singular is, is the verb, which means this is one. It's multiples in one. They, they work together as one. And he does say that, he, he says there basically that he created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, plural, singularly created. He created. And we see that throughout Scripture. Um, in, in, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, let what us make man in our image. One God, three persons. God's not schizophrenic here, but you have the Godhead in relationship from the very beginning all the way back to Genesis. Um, the next verse there actually, um, I don't think it's in your notes, but Elohim is the, the plural, created man in his, in other words, the singular, his own image. So the Godhead is plural, but there's only one God, three persons, one God. And again, the writer wasn't thinking about this when he was writing, but the author, God, was. He was giving us this information for a purpose. Um, so when you go to Judaism, you have the Shema, right? In, in, in Deuteronomy, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. Now, what a lot of people don't understand about that verse in, in Deuteronomy 6.4, it literally... Um, is that one, it literally means one in a multitude or one in a group. Your God, he is one. He is one in a multitude of persons. He is one in a grouping. Um, we have the same thing when you think about marriage, right? In, 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 throughout the, the, the Bible, uh, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his what? Father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. What is it? It's the same word in, in Greek and in Hebrew there. It's one flesh. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but when a man and a woman get married, they don't become one human being. That would be really messed up. You know, they don't become some hybrid. Okay, maybe our culture today would want that. I don't know. They're still two persons. But the Bible says they're one in marriage. They're one couple. They're one in the eyes of God. Two people who have become one flesh, one marriage. That's the idea here. And God gives us these little kind of pictures of, of things that refer to the Trinity, but we still don't fully grasp it. We have a, a, a multitude, but they are and they make one. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, three persons, who form one God. And you see this over and over again. Now, it's important to understand they are distinct. 
Um, what that means is they have, you could say it this way, separate states of consciousness, kind of in our own in our own vocabulary. When the when the father speaks to the son, the father refers to himself as I and refers to the son as you. Two different persons. And. When he's speaking to the Spirit, I, you, it's not, it's not the same. It's not the same person. When Jesus speaks, it's not the Father speaking. It's Jesus. It's very important. Remember uh, John 3.16. For God, he's talking about who? The Father. For God so loved the world, what did he do? That he, he, he sent, he gave who? The Son. So you have the Father staying in heaven, but the Son going. And yet they're one. You see how this is kind of difficult to understand. They're, they're two distinct beings, two distinct persons, still both forming one God. Um, Jesus would later on say, when I go to be, remember when he says, when I go to be with my Father, and he says, I'm going to sit down at the right hand of, of my father. He's distinct from the father. Then he, what does he say? He says, I will send you, what? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the comforter. So you have the other personage of the Godhead. The father and the sons are in heaven. The Holy Spirit goes. Um, Isaiah 6, 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? So you see that throughout the scripture that God is referring to each other in person, but all being God. Maybe the, the, the best text for this is the baptism of Jesus. In, in the New Testament, you have Jesus being baptized. Remember when he's baptized in the, in the river uh, Jordan by, by uh, John the Baptist? And so he's going under the water, and the Bible says that when Jesus came out of the water, what happened? The heavens opened up, and who, who spoke? The Father. The Father said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is not Jesus being a ventriloquist. It was, it was God the Father speaking. Okay? This is God the Father from heaven saying to his Son, a distinct other person, you're my Son. And then, what happens? Right, the dove. The dove appears. And who is the dove? It's the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of, of the Holy Spirit. And so you see the Trinity in distinct persons all through, throughout the Scriptures, although are equally co-equal and co-eternal, eternally God. Um. Now, maybe your head hurts, because mine did when I was studying this. That's a good thing, by the way. Uh, we're trying, trying to grasp this right. Um, some, I've heard this illustration, and I've even used this uh, in the past when I was a younger believer. You know, you, you could say, well, you know, I'm a pastor, and yet I'm your brother in Christ, and yet I'm a husband. So that represents, no, it doesn't. Um, that's not a good picture of the Trinity um, because I'm just one person. They're just roles I'm playing. So 
See, this is, this is difference. It's not like we, we have one God and he just plays different roles. No, these are distinct persons of the Trinity. Um, that's, you know, that's what modalism teaches. You'll hear this heresy. Modalism teaches that God revealed himself at different times, but there's really only one God. So at one time, God revealed himself as the Father, and then later on, he revealed himself as the Son, and then later on, he revealed himself as the Spirit. We have portions of Scripture, like the baptism of Jesus, that, that plays you know, havoc with that, right? Because they're all there, or at creation, he refers to us. Um, so modalism teaches that. That's a heresy. We don't have one God who's just revealing himself in different roles. We have one God who is three distinct persons or personalities, three states of consciousness. And it's very important we understand that. Um, now, there's a third piece of this Trinitarian truth that I want to leave with you that we need to understand. So there's only one God. There's God is three persons. And the third thing is each person is God. Each person of the Trinity is God. And, and that is very important for us to understand. Each person is God. There's only one God. There are three persons in the Godhead, but each person is God. They are co-equal. You know, and this blows people's minds. There's not a hierarchy in the Trinity. Sometimes we believe that because that's how we address what? We say the Father, the Son, and what? The Holy Spirit, right? You do the sign of the cross, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you think, okay, well, the Father's up here, and then you got the Son down here, and then you got the Holy Spirit just kind of floating around everywhere. No. No, a thousand times no. There's no hierarchy. You can't look at it that way. They are co-equal. In the Godhood, they are distinct persons. And don't, don't think of the, 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 the Trinity as a pie. They're cutting up No. Uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all definitively God. They all have godly attributes. They all possess the same attributes. The Father is omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Um, he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? He's all loving. He's all wise. Well, guess what? Jesus is the same thing. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is the same thing. They're fully God. Now, Philippians does tell us in chapter 2 that when Jesus came to earth, it says that he set aside some of his, his attributes, you could say, his ability to, to exercise those attributes without sacrificing who he was as God because he took on a human body. Uh, it says he did not grasp, he did not hold on to some of these things. He was willing to let go of some of those things for the period of time he was here on earth. He was still fully God. And the Holy Spirit, same thing. He can go through the same thing. So he, they all have the attributes of God. They're co-equal. And they're also all co-eternal. Uh, this is important because there's some people that, that believe um, that they're not all co-eternal. Um, this means that there's never been a time when the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Um, God the Father didn't create the Son. 
The Son didn't create the Holy Spirit. See, this is where the Jehovah Witness and the Mormon faith, uh, they get really mixed up on that. They, they think the Father created the Son and the, the Spirit was created. They just get really confused in their theology. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of times the Holy Spirit just gets the, the, the designation as a force. It's not even a person. It's just a force, just a powerful force that floats around and affects people. Um, see, when you're referring to the Holy Spirit, don't, don't call him it. He's a person. He's a person. Um, the, the Bible refers to him as a person, not, not in the form of a male, but in the terms of a person. So he, the Holy Spirit, is fully God. He's fully eternal. He has always been. None were created by the others. None are more powerful than the others. They have always existed from what we would say is the, be the beginning. You could say that, but there is no beginning because they're eternal. <laughs> so they've always been here. And that's important because you run into heresies where Jesus was created or the Holy Spirit was created or somehow they're not eternal. And that creates all kinds of confusion in the salvation that, that God has given us. Now, another word for God that we use frequently is the word Lord, capital L. You've seen that in Scripture. When someone is called Lord, capital L, we know that they're, re they're referring to who? God. They're referring to God. Did you know this? Each one of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one of them are referred to as Lord in the Scriptures? We think of Jesus being Lord, right? Which he is. For instance, in 1 Kings 8.60, it says that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Okay, he's referring there to the Father. The, 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 the Father is God. Or Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit. See, it's not just Jesus who's referred to as Lord. All the Trinity's referred to as Lord. So all of these, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God. And when we look at creation, who created the world? Who created the heavens and, and the earth? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you go through the scriptures, each person of the Godhead was, was involved in that process. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Um, and then Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and in earth. And then in Job chapter 26, verse 13, at the beginning there, it says, By his, uh, uh, it says wind, but you can also refer to that as spirit, for by his spirit the heavens were made. And so you have the spirit creating, you have Jesus Christ creating, you have the God, the Father involved in this process. Um, all three are participants because all three are God. Um, so if you're not yet thoroughly confused, I just give you this little illustration there in the, the outline 
It's a good diagram to depict the Trinity. As you look at it there in your outline, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And, and I think we should kind of tilt that, skew it off so the Father's not on top because it, it, it creates this idea of a hierarchy, but be what it is. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now look at what it says. The Father there is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. It's a good depiction of a very simple illustration of what the Trinity really is. It, it, it gives us the ability to at least see that, that we have, we have three distinct persons, but one God. We're monotheistic. We have one God in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is God no matter how you work this. Um, the Son is God, the Father is God. They're all distinct, but they're, they're all just one. They're all God, they're all distinct, they're all co-equal, they're co-eternal, um, but they are not each other. They are not each other. And so the kind, this kind of illustration gives us at least a format for us to understand. Um, now, it's important to understand that none of the persons of the Godhead are inferior or superior to another. And this guy touched on this earlier a little bit. Is, and we, it comes out of, a lot of it comes out of our Catholic faith. We think somehow God is on the top, and then you, know, you have the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit. Um, and so the Father is superior to everybody. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the Bible says that, did you know that in the Bible there are 12 places that uses the grouping of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? There are 12 places where it lists them, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in those 12, six times of the 12, half the time, it's in a different order. It doesn't just say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It say Holy Spirit, Son, Father <laughs> at times. So it's, it's, there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason to it because they're all equal. And so we, we have to just constantly be reminding ourselves of that because we, we get this idea of this hierarchy with God and it doesn't exist. They're all, they're all God. And so let's look at the, the last thing here, the third thing that we need to <clears throat> not just understand that um, to embrace the ministry the mystery of the Holy Spirit and explore the majesty, but lastly, enjoy the ministry of the Trinity. Enjoy the ministry of the Trinity. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, stop and think about your salvation. When it comes to your salvation, do you know that each member of the Trinity is involved? It has a distinct role. When you look at Scripture, each member of the Trinity has a distinct role in our salvation. The Father uh, uh, kind of... So, Thought our, sought out our, our salvation. Uh, Jesus brought about our salvation. The, the Spirit uh, applied our salvation to us, you could say. Uh, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, there in verse 1 and 3, you see the Father's work. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so the Father says that he chose us for salvation, 
praise the Lord. And he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has blessed us, it says, with all these blessings in Christ. And so that's, that's, that's important. And when did he do this? He did it before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Well, what's Jesus's role? Well, it says in Ephesians 1, 7, verse 7, if you just jump down the page, in him, in, we have redemption through his blood. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Well, what did Jesus do? The Father chose us. Jesus really purchased us. He, he paid for our sins. You might say our salvation is in Christ. It's in Jesus. And when it comes to our salvation, it was Jesus who died on the cross. And so he, he purchased us. So the Father chose us. The Son purchased us. And when it comes to applying our salvation, look at verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. He continues on this uh, theme here, and he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what happened? What did the Spirit do? It says, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. That, that seal of the Holy Spirit is very important. That's what gives us security in Christ. That's what confirms our salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see it all right there. The Trinity is thoroughly involved in our salvation. The Father chose you. Jesus Christ cleansed you from your sins. And then the Holy Spirit came along and made you holy. He sealed you in your salvation. He applied that salvation to your soul. The Bible says you can't get to the Father except what? Through the Son. There's only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, no one comes to the Father Jesus said, but through me. It's a very prescribed, precise way of salvation. But did you know that you can't even get to the Son except the Spirit of God leads you and draws you? And Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, and he will what? Lead you in all truth. So the Holy Spirit has this ability to lead us to the Son, which allows us in the presence of the Father when we put our faith and trust in Christ. So we can't get to the Father except through the Son, and we can't get to the Son except that we're led by the Holy Spirit. Um, why is it important that we know about the Trinity? Because all of them, all three persons of the Godhead, had a role in our salvation. And you can't just wash that away. You can't say, well, I don't think it's a matter whether you believe in the Trinity or not. It's definitely a big, a big deal. I don't think you can be a believer and not believe in the Trinity. And so when you put and you apply our minds and we begin to understand this, what happens? I don't know. The more I studied this, the more feeble and frail I felt throughout the weeks. Like, wow, I can't comprehend this. And yet, what? We want to honor God for who he is. We can't do that unless we know who he is. And um, 
you know, when you start to put this all together, you really, it really motivates your, your desire really to serve God more. You want to understand how to deepen your love for other people? I would say understand the Trinity more. You want to understand uh, how to deepen your prayer life? Understand the Trinity more. You want to understand how to deepen your worship? Understand the Trinity more. It's all connected. Um, somebody once said, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, and the one in the middle, he died for me. <laughs> I thought that was kind of neat. But when we understand the Trinity, it really encourages us more. Like I said, this is just a, a nail, you know, just a little brush overlook of it. But hopefully it gives you some thought and you can think about it and pray that God would lead you and you can look up the verses that are there. Now Dave provided for us an outline on um, the uh, Athanasian Creed and it talks about the Trinity in here and he has the same diagram on the back. And so we'll go ahead and, and Dave, you can pass these out to people. It's just something you can take with you. And um, I don't know if you want to say anything more about it, Dave, but... All right, before you hand those out, let's, let's close in prayer, and then we can uh, look over the outline. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the marvelous doctrine, the truth of the Trinity. Um, one God, and yet three distinct persons. And, and Lord, it's interesting to see how they all play a role in our salvation and creation and, and how you've given us pictures of the Trinity in different, different parts of our lives, and yet uh, they fall way short. But at least it's a... It's a uh, a picture of it. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, um, give us that desire to know more about you and your character and your love and your your care for us. And Lord, I pray that as we leave this place tonight, Lord, you bless our conversation as we depart, Lord, that we would uh, really consider who we could reach out to uh, who may not know you. Lord, that we are left here to uh, really be your representative here on earth to this lost and dying world in which we live and and Father, I know there's many here in this uh, room even now that have family members and neighbors and friends that don't know you. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, uh, use us um, to expose them to the truth of the gospel, to expose them to Christ, to God. And Lord, that, that we would emulate you the best way we can. And Father, we thank you. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that resides within us, that gives us the ability to live the, the Christian life that you've called us to. And so we pray that you just bless us, dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.